you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. This episode represents the fifth installment of our ODG series. In an effort to mix things up a little, we are going to explore the life and times of the former PGA Tour professional, Calvin Beat. In advance of the imminent publication of a biography of the two-time Ryder couple, entitled Golf's Forgotten Star, its author Gordon Hobson joins us from New Orleans to chart Pete's unlikely trailblazing story. To provide context to Calvin's rise, we initially analysed the growth of the segregated game of golf in the USA, where a non-Caucasian policy was enforced on the professional tour up to the 1960s. An interesting side note relates to the importance of the golf mad Joe Lewis, who was central to the growth of golf amongst the black community in the US. The names Charlie Sifford, Ted Rhodes, and Bill Spiller may not ring a bell for many of you. However, it is upon their shoulders that Lee Elder, Calvin Pete, and indeed Tiger Woods both stood and stand in competing and winning on the PGA Tour. Gordon provides us with great insight into Pete's life, and I wholeheartedly recommend that you keep an eye out for the publication, which is due to hit the stands in February. It's a wild, rip-roaring story, which illustrates how despite the disadvantages that may have derailed many others, Pete's dedication, hard work and talent overcame the obstacles that were strewn in his path. I have included a link to the publisher's website in the show notes, and really do hope that you enjoy our chat. Ah, look, we're, we're good. We're good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, yeah. Happy with that. Happy with that. Um, perfect. Well, look, uh, without further ado, as they say, Gordon Hobson, you're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf podcast. So we're here to have a chat about the career of Calvin Pete, one of golf's forgotten stars. Before we make a start on the specifics of his very interesting story, I think an introduction to the sporting and associated civil rights landscape in the United States from the foundation of the United Golfers Association in 1925 might be welcomed by listeners. So by way of introduction, I'd like to use a quote which you utilised in uh, your soon-to-be-published book on, uh, on Mr. Pete. So it's a quote from Jim Murray of the LA Times in April 1969. Murray tells us that before Charlie Sifford, golf was essentially the recreational arm of the Ku Klux Klan. So over to you, Gordon, to give us the historical context of the UGA and the intervening decades. Well, the uh, UGA was started in, in 1925, and um, the, PG, the PGA uh, actually enacted the Caucasian-only clause in 1934, but the clause merely served to put in writing what had already been the policy, which was that they were not permitting African-Americans to play on their tour. And that is the reason that the UGA was started, was to provide a place for black professional golfers to play. And, and they allowed amateurs as well. And it was, uh, it was quite a party. They had uh, a lot of the celebrities and, and musicians and what have you of the day would come uh, to these events. Uh, but for the golfers themselves, it wasn't a lot. The purses were extremely low and the fields were not deep. But at any rate, so the UGA went along right until uh, right until the Caucasian only clause was uh, was abandoned in 1961. Um, Mr. Murray's quote is in 1969 and relates to the failure of the Masters to invite any African Americans to compete uh, in the Masters. Uh, even uh, Charlie Sifford. Uh, had won two events on tour, and uh, Pete Brown had won as well, and they were not invited. It had always been the policy 
until the abolition of the Caucasian-only clause, it had always been the policy that the Masters would invite a player who won a, a PGA event in the previous year. And Charlie Sifford had the 36-hole lead in the Canadian Open um, after, I think, in 1962. And uh, a message was put on the bulletin board that night that the Masters would not be extending an automatic invitation to the winner of that year's uh, Canadian Open. And so they persisted until 1971 when they finally said, okay, if you win a PGA event, we'll invite you. And then it took another three years until Lee Elder finally won the Monsanto Open in 1974 and then secured his invitation to the Masters in 1975. The backdrop for all this is that the United States was very segregated society. And then it, it began to integrate somewhat in 1948. Jackie Robinson, as we all know, uh, took the field for the Brooklyn Dodgers. And then the NFL and the NBA also uh, integrated around the same time. But, but golf continued to adhere to the Caucasian-only clause. And, and Bill Spiller and Teddy Rhodes were clearly good enough to be playing in the PGA. And then in 1948, they played in the LA Open, which was one of only a couple events that were not segregated. And uh, they made the cut and played well. And the rules of the PGA at that time were that anybody who made the cut in an event the previous week would be welcome to play in the next event without having to be a Monday qualifier. So Rhodes and Spiller showed up at the next event in Richmond, and then they were told they couldn't play. So if that's, that's kind of the, the background, if you will, of a uh, uh, of the sports at that point, golf was essentially 10, 12 years behind the other sports in in. What can you tell us about the Spiller and Rhodes case versus the PGA Tour? I believe those two gentlemen challenged the Caucasians only policy. They did. You're you're correct. They they challenged the policy after they were denied the right to play in 1948 at the Richmond Open, and there was also a uh, amateur. Uh, Madison Guntner, who was a third party to the case, a liberal attorney up there uh, in, in the San Francisco area, took the case uh, and sued the PGA. And the PGA then promised, well, we won't adhere to the Caucasian-only clause anymore. And they then agreed to drop the lawsuit. And the PGA said, right, we won't exclude you because you're black. We're going to exclude you because you're not a member of the PGA. And so essentially nothing changed at that time. And it, it went on that way until 1952, when there was a second uh, legal challenge. And at that point, the PGA began to loosen it. They said, well, these are invitationals. You can't play just if you want to, you have to be invited. But slowly, they, they began to invite some black offers notably Charlie Sifford, to play in their events. And, and when Sifford got out there, he did quite well. He, I think he came in fifth in the Greensboro Open. He had the first round lead and hecklers followed him and he's getting death threats and everything else. And he still managed to go out and play extremely well. And, and as you say, the PGA Tour finally abolished the Caucasian-only policy in 61. But it wasn't until 75 that the Masters reciprocated with a similar policy decision. Just while I was reading the book, the irony of the master's slogan being a tradition like no other, um, it's, a, it's a manufactured tradition, I suppose, it being the youngest of the uh, four major tournaments. You know, quite, not unsurprising, but I guess just to, to read into the record, as you said, Pete Brown won the Waco Turner in 64, no invite. Charlie Sifford wins the 67th Hartford and the 69 LA Open, no invite. Obviously, Lee Elder became the first black golfer to get an invitation in 75 after his win at the 74 Monsanto Open. Before we get cracking into Calvin's story, I just would like to bring you back some probably 30 years or so. And I believe the boxer Joe Lewis um, obviously was, was kind of key. He was one of. I believe an early, he had an interest in golf and he went out of his way to try and support some of the fledgling black golfers in the UGA. Would that be correct? 
Yes, very much so. Uh, I did not really know, and I suspect most people did not know about Joe Lewis's involvement in golf. He's hugely important to the history of black golf. Uh, Lewis was a national hero. He knocked out Max Schmeling in two minutes, and uh, 100 million people were listening on the radio when he did that, and that he, and he was a, a patriot. He volunteer in World War II, and uh, just hugely important. And he, he's kind of like Calvin in the sense that he's introduced to golf, and he's crazy about it. He, he can't play enough golf. And they said that he actually lost to Schmeling in, in 1936 because all he did, he didn't want to train. All he wanted to do was play golf. But he, he backed Rhodes, and he backed Spiller, and he backed other players, and he held the Joe Louis Open, part of the UGA tour at that time. And then he became very much an advocate for abolishment of the Caucasian only clause. He was invited to the San Diego Open as an amateur in 1954. And then he was told, no, you can't, you can't play because you're a Negro. And Lewis went crazy. Um, and he had. He had the power and the contacts and the national popularity to really challenge the PGA. And he actually, uh, um, I think he went a step further than Jim Murray, and he called the, the PGA, we have another Hitler to get by. And uh, Lewis won. Lewis got to play in that, even though the PGA didn't want him to. He eventually got to play in the San Diego Open. He became the first African-American to play in a PGA event. And he also won the UGA amateur at one time. He beat a very young Lee Elder in the finals of that. So he's a very important figure in golf. So uh, I, I guess with that preamble uh, ticked off, perhaps we can start introducing people to Calvin Pete's story. Over to you. I believe he was born in Detroit. 17 siblings. Yes. <laughs> he had. Wow. <laughs> his his first family, I believe Calvin was the eighth or ninth child. His parents had been uh, migrant laborers, and they moved uh, from the South to Detroit, like so many uh, African Americans of that era did, the Great Migration. And they, they settled in Detroit. His father got a job at the auto factory there, and his mother was a domestic. They his father went to the third grade. I think his mother went to the eighth. So, and they were working and they're raising eight kids. They didn't have money uh, to do much of anything. And the kids just played in the street. Calvin was the youngest of that family. And when Calvin got old enough to go to school, his, uh, his older sisters would get him dressed and get him to school. Uh, the parents were always off working. So I don't think it was a, a great a great childhood. And then when Calvin was about 10, his parents split up and his dad left and his mom then had nowhere to go. And so she took Calvin and a couple of siblings to Haiti, Missouri, which is where uh, grandma lived. And they, they lived in a house and they didn't have running water or heat. And the older siblings would go and pick cotton in the summer. Calvin wasn't old enough to, to pick cotton at that point. And then his mother died. She'd gone, she'd left Haiti and gone to Chicago for work. And then he received word that the mother had died. And then his dad came and picked him up and took him uh, to Pahokee, uh, Florida, again, a, a area for picking crops. Now, when Calvin was 12, he, he traveled with his aunt, uh, Lulu, to Sutton's Bay, Michigan. And she had gone up there to pick cherries in a for like three weeks in the middle of the summer, these cherries become extremely uh, ripe and they're sought after and wonderful cherries. And so Lulu had gone up there to pick cherries and they were living in a migrant laborer camp. And Calvin one day is playing follow the leader with a bunch of other kids. And Calvin's the leader and he climbs way up in a tree and hangs upside down like he's on a trapeze. And he slips and he falls and he lands on his left elbow and he, he, it's a horrific fracture. It's a triple fracture of his left elbow. I suspect he did not get the best medical care being a migrant laborer, uh, probably didn't have a, a good health insurance plan. And so the doctors 
set this, this fracture, and six weeks later, the cast comes off, and they have not set it properly. And so uh, Calvin's elbow is bent by 30 degrees for the rest of his life. Some people maintain that that actually turned out to be a benefit for him, that the, the bent elbow allowed him to become the most accurate driver of the golf ball in history because he could set it. He could set the, the backswing right in the, right in the spot there. Contrary to everything that classic golf instruction teaches about keeping the arm straight until it's parallel with the ground, and Calvin could never do that. But he did play with that disability or perhaps uh, not a disability for, the, for his whole life. Well, look, we will get to the astronomical statistics with regard to accuracy, but we need to cover off the early days, first of all. So he was late to golf, yeah? I believe somewhere along the path, he was kind of a traveling salesman and used to sell his wares, if you like, around the migrant camps and so on and so forth. Right, right. When Calvin is 23 years old, his life is essentially going nowhere. He was a migrant laborer himself, picking crops in the Florida sun. He noticed that there was people that drove around and sold clothes and radios and hot plates and what have you to migrant laborers. And, and Calvin said, that looks better than picking crops. And when he's 17 years old, he acquires an old station wagon, gets a peddler's license, and goes to Miami to pick up wares and then brings them back and sells them in Pahokee. And he's he can make $600 a week doing this. And then he begins to follow the migrant laborers all over the country, leaving Florida in the summer months and going all the way up to, to New York. At one point, he expanded his uh, offerings to include jewelry because that was very popular. And then he decided to have diamonds embedded in his two front teeth to kind of help him advertise what he has to offer there. So but he's going nowhere. I mean, he's hustling. He's a very good pool player. He's hustling pool. He's throwing loaded dice sometimes. He's running little scams. He's an eighth grade dropout. He's not headed for anything significant in life. So he's 23 and he's up in Rochester, New York, and he's got a couple of buddies that were also pool hustlers and they had been caddies and they liked to play golf. And so they would say to Calvin, Calvin, come play golf with us. And Calvin goes, I am not going to go play golf. I mean, that is a sissy game for old white people, and I don't want any part of it. And so they can't get Calvin to go golf with them. So one day they say, hey, Cal, there's a clam bake. Why don't you come in? It'll be great. There's going to be lots of beer. There'll be girls. And I mean, you know, you, you can't beat it. Calvin says, sure. So they drive to Genesee Golf Course. And they say, you can rent clubs and play with us, or you can sit in the car for four hours. So Calvin goes and rents clubs, and he gets on the first tee, and he says, these guys say more, Ike and Roscoe as two buddies, and he says, all right, so what is the objective of this game? What am I supposed to do? And they point to this flag stick 370 yards away, and they say, at the bottom of that flag stick, there's a little four-inch hole. And you take these clubs and you hit the ball and you try to get in that little hole. And so Calvin's like, okay. So he gets up the tee, he swings, he misses. Like a lot of people do the first time. And he does it again. He swings, he misses. And so these guys are razzing him. Finally, he hits the ball. For the whole round, he never gets the ball airborne. And he continues to miss with some frequency. But he makes a par. There's one short par three and he makes a par on it and he's going wild he's so excited and right away he goes and he buys clubs and he begins to practice he gets back to fort lauderdale and he's out there in the middle of the night hitting balls in the public park and and the neighbors are going there's you know there's some nut out there hitting balls and the police go and now that's calvin he's just hitting balls you know so and he begins to build his game, and he begins to get better. And when he's improved to a certain level, he gets uh, a regular foursome. And he's playing with a dentist and a school principal and a school teacher. 
who are some of the better players at his little public course, Calvin's the worst guy in the group. I mean, he's been playing two years and he's still the worst player in a local foursome, but he keeps practicing. These guys, they get done, they're going to go have a beer. Calvin's going to go play nine more holes or go beat 100 balls before he goes home. And he just keeps getting better. He has a little tripod with a camera on it and he films those practice sessions. And then he goes and reviews them at night, which is what he did his whole career. He didn't just hit balls all day, but then he reviewed his practice sessions at night. So he gets better. Finally, he can beat these guys. And he, he goes along and he keeps improving in his game. And it's not for uh, maybe after he's been playing four years before he plays in his very first amateur event. He didn't see any sense in playing in an amateur event where you could win a trophy. That wasn't his thing. I suspect he had some pretty good money games going. And it's, it's essentially an evolution of his days as a pool hall hustler. It's just golf instead. And so in 1971, he decides to turn pro. He, he plays in an event, and there's some tour players in it, and he's stride for stride with these tour players, and he thinks, okay, I've got what it takes. And serendipitously at that time, a pro in Tampa has set up a mini tour, and for $7,000, which is like $53,000 in today's money, Calvin is the first guy to enter this tour. It's a good tour. There's Tom Kites playing on the tour, Lon Henkel, Andy North. A number of guys that would go on to have big careers are on this mini tour along with Calvin. And he does, he does pretty well. At that point, he wins a tournament. He shoots a course record 62. But then when he goes to Q school and tries to move up to the big tour, he bombs. And he bombs in 72 and 73 and 74. He can't get his card. So he's just very, very discouraged at that point. And then finally, in 1975, he gets his tour card, which at that point means that he's a rabbit, which means he can go out on Mondays and try and qualify for that week's event. In other words, his tour card doesn't really get him into any tournaments. And so in 1975, he only gets into two tournaments. For the whole year, and he misses the cut in both. He comes home, he's completely defeated. He's this whole quest to get on the tour, not three years to get through Q school and then to get out there, and he hasn't won a nickel. He's got essentially nothing going on, and he's home. People notice he's lost weight, and he's sitting there, and the phone rings, and it's a guy from Amboy, Illinois, a grocery store owner who's never met Calvin, but he watched him play in one of these tour events, and he, and he says, I'd like to sponsor you on the tour. I mean, it's, it's an absolute miracle. Without that phone call, I'm quite sure we wouldn't be sitting here talking about Calvin Pete. I guess that he never would have made it anywhere, but he did. The guy gave him 25000 a year to go out, and he's now able to go back on the tour not having to worry about getting enough to eat or a place to stay as he bounces around the country. So that's his early golfing career before he actually gets out on the tour in 1976. So in terms of looking at his record, I believe his first win happened in 1975 at the Greater Milwaukee Open. 1979, actually. So, sorry, beg your pardon, yeah, beg yeah. your pardon. That that is what I have written down here. I don't know why I, for, I don't know why I had that Freudian slip of 1975. So obviously during the course of 79, 22 events, seven top tens, one win, and he was fully exempt, obviously for for 1980 on on the money list. Um, one one thing that I'm interested in, obviously 1982 seemed to be a halcyon year for him. What can you tell us about the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach? Obviously, won by Tom Watson, head-to-head against Jack Nicholas, And I believe Calvin was paired with Jack that day. That's right. Calvin had gone, uh, just for very brief background, in 79, 80, and 81. Calvin had established himself as a solid tour player over those three years. He's winning $100,000 a year. He's in the top 30 in money winnings. But 
he only wins one tournament the whole time. He's not an elite player. He's, he's what you, I guess you would call a very good player at that point. So 1982, he's having a good tournament at the U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. And he is playing with Nicholas. They're in contention. They're both up there. I think they're tied for seventh at that point. And so he gets to see up close and personal Jack Nicholas at his best. And Nicholas makes five birdies in a row. He's coming after Watson and he wants to win the Open. And what Calvin gets to watch is that Nicholas can train himself. So he's totally riveted and Nothing is affecting his concentration. Calvin, by contrast, is like, hey, this is great. I'm playing golf every day. I'm making $100,000 a year, and you know, which is good money in 1980 or 81. And uh, you know, he's kind of he's happy with that. He's kind of complacent. And then he sees the world's best and what he does. And Calvin realizes, I can be so much better. I mean, I can do what Nicholas is doing. And it's just, it's a matter of upping his concentration and upping his focus and having the confidence to do that. And the, the Nicholas almost wins that event. But, but the other thing that happens in 1982, that is, I think really, really important to Calvin's career is, is he, he gets hooked up with this caddy, Dolphus golf ball hall and Hall is one of the greatest caddies in history, and he caddied regularly for Raymond Floyd, but Hull is also one of the most irresponsible caddies in history. Um, one time, Floyd gave him his new Lincoln, and, and he never saw it again. Hull just drove off it. Who knows what happened to the Lincoln? He had to bail him out of jail one time, but Hull is, is clearly a genius. He can give the right club as good as anybody ever, ever could. He can read a green as well as anybody can ever read a green, and he's a sports psychologist. He's very brash. He'll tell anybody what they should do. And he'll, as, as Floyd said, he had that absolute instinct to say the right thing at the right time in the right manner. So Floyd fires Hull six times, hires him back every time. He, he knows he's got he can't he can't have anybody else. He can't live with him, and he can't live without him. Right. It's like a marriage. <laughs> so, so Floyd has to have Hall, and, and Floyd is one a Hall of Famer, and he said, I've had many caddies, including Stevie Williams, who, of course, was Tiger's caddy. He said, Hall is the best. He's just, just the best caddy I ever had. He's just fantastic. So during one of their periods of estrangement between uh, Floyd and Hall, Alvin is fortunate enough to get Hall in the bag. And Hall says, Pete can win consistently on tour. The only thing is he doesn't have enough confidence. So he takes over Calvin and to another level. And Calvin never could read greens very well. And Hall, is a, he's a godsend because he, he can tell Calvin where the ball's going and he can make sure he has the right club. And so... All of a sudden, Calvin's just a different player. He goes from having had one win on tour three years ago to he, he wins four times in 1982, three of those with Hall on the back. Hall had six wins that year. He also caddied for Floyd in three wins. So, I mean, he's clearly the guy you want on the bag, and it, it just elevates Calvin to a completely different level uh, of player at that point. So something I'd like to look at, obviously, in terms of the 1982 season, is the PGA Championship at Southern Hills, which ironically Ray Floyd won. Calvin tied for third with Freddie Couples. Yeah, yeah, okay. Which actually, at the time, I believe, was the best finish by a black golfer in a major ever. That's correct. What can you tell us about the PGA Championship at Southern Hills? Well, he tied with Fred Couples for third, and as you said, it was the best finish at that point. He didn't choke. Um, you know, if he'd had a hole on the bag, he might well have won it. Uh, Raymond Floyd won. Beyond that, I don't know what I could really, really add to it. That's okay. What's really of more interest really is just 82 seemed to be a, a seriously good season for Pete. Obviously, he'd go on to win a further three occasions in 82. The BC and Pensacola opens on the PGA Tour. 
and the end of season jolly in Japan at the Dunlop Phoenix Tournament, beating into second place none other than Severiana Ballesteros. Pretty significant. The interesting thing really in relation to 82 is at this stage Pete was not a member of the PGA of America. And as a result of that, he was advised that he would not that that one would not be forthcoming until he could until he proved that he had a GED equivalency certificate. Now, I understand that that was one of the provisos of the stipulations in terms of PGA of America membership. Pete would obtain this in 1982, and unfortunately, as a result of not being a PGA of America member, the organization informed Calvin that any accomplishments, as in all of the money that he won in 1982, would not be recognized until he had a GED certificate. In fact, even after the GED certification process, it would not be backdated, as it were. So ultimately, all the money that he won, from a Ryder Cup qualification purposes, was null and void. The ironic thing, before, before you actually answer the question, is Roy McIlroy left school with one GCSE, in other words, halfway through his high school education, and he had no problem being a member of the, the, the PGA of America, the PGA Tour, representing European Ryder Cups, etc., etc. So it just, just goes to show another one of the hurdles that were put in Pete's way. Yeah, very much so. It's, it's really incredible. You think about a 39-year-old guy who's only gone to the eighth grade and and now he has to go back and study and get his GED and thankfully his wife was a school teacher and had help with it but you know that couldn't have been easy to go back and and take all those high school courses if you'd never been exposed to it before but he did it and he got his GED and the Ryder Cup qualification process at that point there weren't any captain's choices it was just just based on points you had to come in in the top 10 in an event to get any Ryder cup points a win would be 60 points and it would go down to if you came in 10th you'd get six points and so calvin had won and it's a two-year window 82 and 83 is when you get the points and so calvin had won all these events in 1982 and had accumulated, I think it was 252 Ryder Cup points at that time, which pretty much would get him on the team. And they said, well, we're, you know, congratulations on your GED. That's great. But guess what? None of those points count because you weren't a member of the PGA at the time you were those points, which is just, I mean, come on, <laughs> it's crazy. And so Calvin amazingly says, that's okay. I there's still plenty of time. I can earn I can earn I can earn the points on the team again and doing it in essentially half the time that the other people did. And you know what? He went out and he did it and he made the team. He he was that good that he could go out and earn his way on the team in like half the tournaments of the other people. So that got him on to the Ryder Cup team. The very interesting and I did not know the point you raised about Roy McIlroy not completing high school. And I, I went I went back and I looked to try and find out if that's still a requirement. And, and I don't believe that it is a requirement to play on the tour now that you have a high school degree. It still is a requirement to be a, a PGA club professional. And of course, they have other schooling they have to do, but they are required to be a high school graduate as part of the becoming a, a PGA club pro. I, I guess just by way of context, obviously the Ryder Cup in 83 was held at PGA National at West Palm Beach Gardens. Calvin Pete was 40 years of age in making the team alongside Lanny Watkins, Ray Floyd, Tom Kite, Fuzzy Zeller, Craig Stadler, Jay Haas, Gil Morgan, Ben Crenshaw, Bob Gilder, Curtis Strange, and none other than Tom Watson. Peace uh, delivered two and a half points, uh, a 2 1 1 record, including a foursomes win with Tom Kite against Biasteris and Paul Way. This obviously was the first European team. Obviously, formerly it was the GBN Ireland team, and it was really the one that lit the fire underneath the Europeans. With Sevi in tow, they would go on to do something monumental on, in 1985 at the Belfry. It was interesting to note that. Pete was 
partnered with Tom Kite and Ben Crenshaw during the 1983 Ryder Cup. So he, he was keeping very good company. He was one of the, he, I guess he was one of the best players in the world at the time. Calvin was clearly one of the best players in the world. And when he put him together with Kite, that was a really strong team because they, were, they had two of the best scoring averages on tour. And they were two of the straightest strikers of the ball, and they meshed well together. Um, beating Ballesteros uh, in the foursomes match uh, was was really interesting because, uh, as you know, in the Ryder Cup, you don't know who you're going to play. The captains just submit the teams, and then they, they're matched up based on the order they're submitted. So Calvin goes out with Kite, and they're playing the Ballesteros, who's clearly the best player in the world at that point, uh, and they get matched up against him and Paul Way, and they get to the 15th hole, and the match is all square, and Way hits the ball. It's a par three. Way hits the ball on the green 16 feet away, and Kite hits it in the rough, uh, he, and he's short-sighted. It's a really hard shot for Calvin. And Calvin goes down there. I wondered if he was inspired by Tom Watson's chip at Pebble. But at any rate, he looks at this thing and you're thinking, oh, my God, just get it close and hope Biosteros misses and we'll get out of this hole. And Calvin keeps looking at it and goes, you know what? I can make it. And he does. Uh, he chips it in and he's, in, he, he's now into the head of the world's best player and Biosteros misses. And then two holes later, Calvin rolls in another birdie. And that's it. They they beat Biosteros and Way two and one, and that's the only match that Biosteros and or Way don't win the whole Ryder Cup. So it's really the key, the key match uh, that sets the tone for the whole thing. So just just amazing that they do that. And Calvin goes on to win his singles match, and as you said, has a two one and one record. So he's as important to the team as anybody except Tom Watson. He also. Was you named all the players on it, and Calvin was the a rookie, and he was the oldest player on the team except for Raymond Floyd. He's only three years younger than the captain, Jack Nicholas. So, just an amazing performance, and particularly to qualify with half the qualifying time expunged. Yeah, right, exactly, and 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 really never raised a stink about it. Just kind of, that's okay. I can do it. You know, and his attorney said, oh, no, we can go to court. We can get rid of this. And Calvin says, no, I don't want to. I want to do it right. So amazing. So you mentioned there both Pete and Kite's stroke average, if you like. Calvin would go on to win the Varden Trophy in 1984, which is the annual award for the lowest stroke average across the, the PGA Tour season. I believe there was some controversy with regard to Pete and the Varden Trophy. What can you tell us about what that meant to Pete in the first place, but also what the controversy was? To count the Varden, you had to play 80 rounds. And you took the 80 rounds and you averaged them up, and that's essentially what determined the winner of the Varden. Well, if you didn't finish a round or you withdrew from a round, it didn't count. And so Pete, I think in fairness, probably had figured that out. And so in in one event, he signed an incorrect scorecard and got disqualified. And so this lousy round that he'd had didn't count in the Varden Award. And um, other players were upset by that and thought that he shouldn't be allowed to do that. And, you know, the bottom line is, is that those were the rules at the time. He didn't break any rule. He didn't cheat. He didn't roll his ball in the fairway. He didn't do anything, you know, in the rough. He didn't do anything that was outside of the rules. That was the rules. He followed the rules, and other tour players didn't like that. And so that's the, the situation. I'm going, look, he, you know, he followed the rules when they said you got to earn your Ryder Cup points in one year. He didn't complain about that. Calvin said, well, look, I have to withdraw sometimes because. You know, my health isn't that great. My back can kill me. My knees hurt. And uh, and so sometimes I have to withdraw. So that's what happened. And they changed the rule. They passed what's called the Calvin Pete rule and said, you can't do that anymore. And so he didn't. But 
it was controversial. I guess winning the Varden in of itself is a is a fantastic indication of the consistency of play that he managed in 1984. Oh yeah, I mean, and he was 1982. He was very very close. 1983. He was very very close. He was just really, as Dean Beeman said, he was the best player on tour from 1982 to 1986. You know when. They were asking about who's the new dominant player. You know, Dean Beeman, the commissioner of the PGA, said, uh, it's Calvin P. He's won more tournaments than anybody. He's won more money than anybody. He has the lowest scoring average of anybody. He won the Varden. He won the Hogan. He had a winning record in two Ryder Cups. He had a winning record in Japan. He won the players. He won the tournament champions. I mean, hello. You know, he said, I don't see why people can't see it more clearly how dominant he was. He just never got the recognition he should have. Nice segue, Gordon. We'll go straight to the 1985 Players' Championship. What can you... You've given the punchline away. Uh, Sorry. And that's all right. What can you tell us about the Players' Championship winner at Sawgrass in 85? Well, he had he had golf ball back on the bag. He was in contention, playing very well all week. On the next to last round on that Saturday, he has a two-shot lead, and he goes to the 17th hole, the island green, and golf ball hands him the eight iron, and he hits it, splash, right in the water. Uh, He gets the next one on two putts, makes it a double bogey. So he's now tied with Weibring and Hale Irwin, who, as we know, is a very tough customer for the final round lead and Calvin just goes out and goes all in. Um, he, uh, starts birdie birdie. He plays well all day. Everybody falls by the wayside. Nicholas had been there. There was 13 players within three shots of the lead at that point. And so it was, it was essentially wide open, you know, and on that golf course, anything can happen. And Calvin, uh, shoots 66, that day and blows the field away. He gets to the 17th and he has a, a two-shot lead. Wybring's playing very well. Wybring shoots 32 on the front nine, so he's keeping the heat on Calvin all day. And Calvin just steps up to the 17th. Probably most players probably would have tried to play for the middle of the green there, play it safe. And Calvin, he just said, nope, this is it. This is my chance. And he, he hits it four feet from the pin and rolls in the birdie, and it's over. Calvin wins the players. He wins the biggest person golf, $162,000 plus a $75,000 Waterford uh, Crystal, a 10 year exemption on tour. And he proved he can win the biggest tournament there is because, uh, you know, Johnny Miller had called him the king of the B movies, saying, you know, all he won was the. You know, the Milwaukee uh, Milwaukee Open and the Quad Cities and those kinds of events. But most assuredly, his, his most important or most uh, significant win over the course of his career. Uh, he would obviously go on to represent the United States one final time in the defeat at uh, the Belfry in 1985 and would end with a an overall record of four wins, two defeats and one half for four and a half points from a possible seven at the Ryder Cup. His final win on the PGA Tour would come at 42 years of age at the USFG Classic in New Orleans, not too far from where you are currently, giving him, uh, well, certainly nearer to New- where you are than, than me in Port Marnock, that's for sure, giving him career statistics of 12 PGA Tour wins from 1979 to 1986. I, you know, I just want to linger upon the accuracy point that you made. He led the tour, and this is this is this is astronomical. Led the tour for fairways hit for ten years from nineteen eighty one to nineteen ninety. His lowest percentage was seventy seven point five three percent. His highest percentage was eighty four point five five percent. The average being eighty one point nine three. That is quite. It's it's mind blowing. You know, I mean, over the course of 1,200 competitive PGA Tour rounds, he only hit the ball out of bounds once over the course of a PGA career of 20 years. Jesus Christ. Um, That is just, I mean, you know, 
whether you believe he had an advantage with the the accident and the arm, it just it, it beggars belief. It really does. It's just it's just absolutely remarkable. One statistic, the one out, one ball out of bounds in his whole career is amazing. But the other statistic is that at Jack Nicklaus's tournament, the uh, Memorial at Muirfield Village in 1986 and 1987, there's 56 driving on each tournament. And he hit the fairway all 56 times and he repeated it again the next year. He, he hit the fairway 112 times in a row at, at, <laughs> At the memorial, and, and uh, when Tiger Woods was told about that, he said, "I just that's impossible. You can't. I mean, you can't do that. You can't hit the fairway 112 times in a row." And he did, and he he did it very much with his own swing. There's a, a guy uh, named Wayne D. Francisco who's a, a pro, and he has a website. You can go on, and one of the days he analyzes Calvin's swing, and he's he's going. Look at the swing, and he's showing how incredibly different it is from every other swing. And he's going, "You just don't see this." You, he goes, "You just don't see anybody swing like this." And and it's he very much built his own swing, sliding his body far more than anybody ever would, um, and compensating for his disability and just a kind of a bizarre little helicopter move at the top, but. God, was he good, you know, just a powerful low body, just great stability in his swing. You alluded to his uh, his back issues and, and his physical decline, even back as far as 1984. What can you tell us about the additional disabilities that would go on to affect and also Calvin was diagnosed with later in his life, which ultimately must have affected his performance in later years. He had Tourette's, um, which actually is a, it's a disease that would show up when a person is young and, and it causes, uh, it's neurological and it causes tick ticks and jerking motions. And I, I interviewed his caddy, uh, from 1976, Chip Plowman. And he told me that he observed it then. So, Calvin Calvin had this uh, disease the whole time he was competing on tour. He had this Tourette's, and he, it, it caused him to make funny motions sometimes uh, while he was doing it. I think it became worse as he got older; it became more pronounced, and people noticed. He just he just was making really odd motions. It it actually can cause people to just do uh, involuntary vocal outbursts sometimes, where they just they just yell things uh, that they don't even have any control over. And that became part of it for Calvin later in life. And he never would go to see a doctor. And his, uh, uh, his teaching pro and business manager, J.J. Jennings, told me the same thing. He said, Calvin, you got to go see a doctor, you know, like nobody knew what was wrong with him. And Calvin, nah, 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 I'm fine. But he, he acknowledged that he had to think in reverse. So if Calvin wanted to fade the ball, he would think hook. And, and if he wanted to hook the ball, he would th- fade. Uh, just part of the disease that he had to compensate for. And, and clearly that was not any ad- advantage. He, he also had, he had a slip disc. Uh, he did not do well in cold. In fact, that's why he didn't come over in the British Open most years, sitting on the plane all those hours. And then and then being in the cold was very hard for him. If you look at his career, he almost always started playing his best golf in June, July, and August. He was a very much a warm weather player. And that's because his back didn't hurt during the really warm weather. His knees weren't too great either. You know, so he, he was fighting a lot of health issues throughout his career. You know, kind of like a fuzzy zeller. When it felt good, he could play. And tell me this. I mean, certainly I know... More recently, Tiger Woods has been inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. I believe that Charlie Sifford is the only other black inductee which took place in 2004. Strange. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, they've got their their criteria that you have to win a major and have uh, 15 victories. And 
they're not accounting for the older players whose careers were very much affected by the Caucasian-only clause. Lee Elder, for example, he won 18 out of 22 events on the UGA one year. I mean, he, wow. you know, in the first first year, he he was at 33 when he got on the tour. In the very first year, he's in the playoff at, at Firestone with Nicholas. I mean, he, he was ready to play, but his career was affected. Charlie Sifford's career was affected, and Spiller and Rhodes' careers were completely destroyed. Calvin's career was not damaged directly by the Caucasian clause, but just by his station in life and just so far removed from any kind of a, a golf situation. I mean, I, I can't imagine how good Calvin could have been if he, you know, like Jack Nicholas, he started working with a, a tour pro, you know, from the time he's 10 years old. I mean, it's just, you know, with the guys out there 23 years old and starting off with rental clubs. I mean, you know, Biasteros had won three majors. Uh, Rory had won three majors. Nicholas had won more majors than that. You know, And here's Calvin just like, uh, you know, tell me what the objective of this game is. I mean, it's such a late start. Yeah. And look, I mean, it's a wonderful read, Gordon. It really is. I mean, another quote that I pulled out here, author and educator Booker T. Washington once said, Success is to be measured not so much by the position that one has reached in life, as by the obstacles which have been overcome. When this standard is obviously applied to Calvin Pete, it, it's very clear that he's simply one of the best players in, in PGA Tour history over that period of time. I mean, how, how would you assess Calvin's legacy as per the title of your book? Why do you think he's been forgotten? Well, Part of its race, and Calvin said later in life, he said, you know, when I came up in, you know, 1982, when I really emerged, the world just wasn't ready for a black golfer to dominate yet. Amazingly, you're only talking 21 years from the abolishment of the clause until Calvin's winning all these events in 1982. I mean, that's not very long in a historical context. And Maybe the world wasn't quite ready for Calvin Pete yet at that point, and someone of his color and his background. And so I think that's a big reason why he didn't get the recognition. And, and frankly, I think the other thing is the emergence of Tiger Woods. So, you know, Tiger Woods comes out and he wins the Masters by 12 shots and he wins the U.S. Open by 15 shots. And so all of a sudden, Calvin coming in third in the PGA at Southern Hills doesn't seem to be quite as big a deal as it was before. And so I just think, you know, that's why maybe he doesn't get the recognition he deserves. And and Dean Beeman said it, you know, I don't know why he doesn't get the recognition, but he just never did. And, And I really hope that people will read this book and think about this and it'll just elevate Pete in people's minds for the truly incredible golfer that he was. You know, I, I'm not uh, suggesting that what European golfers uh, or early earlyish European golfers such as Seve in the early 80s had to endure is in any way similar to what Calvin had to endure and indeed his, his predecessors. But I kind of get the feeling that and if you look particularly about the Masters in 1980, Seve got an invite based on winning the 79 British Open uh, because he was he was one of one, if you like. And, and very much the PGA Tour at the time was pretty protectionist in terms of, or seems to have been pretty protectionist. You know, what we have, we hold. What are these foreigners coming in, take my spot on the tour? So pretty myopic in terms of, you know, uh, this is an American tour for Americans. Yeah, it, it it's really interesting uh, because, of course, you know, back in 1913, you had uh, Harry Varden and Ted Ray coming over here and playing in the U.S. Open, uh, both Europeans, obviously, and and it, so there didn't appear to be any uh, any obstacle at that point, and maybe the Caucasian clause, where in regard to African Americans, all it did was affirm what was already the rule, but maybe it was more than that for Europeans. Now, 
there weren't a lot of Europeans coming over because, you know, you, you had to ride on the boat for six days each way to get here and then drive to God knows where to play in the, in the tournaments. And the, the pros weren't getting paid tons of money at that time. So, you know, there's that, but I'm sure that that rule served to exclude some Europeans from coming over here and playing. I mean, you had uh, Henry Cotton was a very good player in Europe, um, you know, and, and others that I'm sure could have been successful competing on the PGA Tour. Well, I mean, I, I even remember, I mean, somebody associated with my own club here in Dublin, uh, Christy O'Connor Sr., who would have would have appeared on 10 consecutive Ryder Cup teams for Great Britain and Ireland from 1955 onwards. He got many an invitation to play in the Masters, shall we say, but always had to turn it down because he had a young family. He ultimately was a club professional who needed to look after his members of, of a weekend and just could not afford the time or the expense of, of as you say, traveling across by boat or by plane and trying to acclimatize uh, one's game to American conditions when ultimately the golfing, professional golfing season, such as it was in Europe, probably started after the Masters, uh, as it were. Yeah, the, well, the Masters wasn't part of the PGA, so they were free to invite whoever they wanted to. Correct. And I actually, I actually was looking, and they they had Japanese players in the 1950s playing in the Masters, which of course they weren't playing in the on the PGA at that time. No, they weren't. They weren't. Listen, uh, Gordon, you've been very kind to extend some time to me today to learn a good deal more about uh, Cavan Peace. Indeed, obviously, thank you for the advanced copy of the book. You might let listeners know when the book is due to be published and where perhaps they can purchase it as and when it is. Well, Shane, first of all, thank you so much for having me as a guest. It's really great to talk to you. The book, Calvin Pete, Golf's Forgotten Star, is being published by Roman and Littlefield. It is set for release on February 6th of 2024. It'll be available in hardback. It'll be available in Kindle. And I think it might be one week after that release date, but it'll be available in Audible as well. And so I'm excited about that. We have a very uh, good actor and narrator who's going to be reading the book. So you'll have lots of choices there, however you want to uh, consume the book. And I, I hope very much that people will buy it and enjoy it. So Thank you much. Well, having read it, Gordon, certainly uh, I think the level of detail you've gone into to uh, expose somebody that probably has been forgotten and are certainly is in Tiger's shadow, as it were. Really interesting and certainly to harken back to a day of persimmon clubs uh, when various different styles of game were prevalent amongst the winners. And certainly to my mind, because of that variety, possibly more compelling golf. I, I think so. I think that's right. In, in some ways, it just it was just more interesting. Um, yeah. Or, or maybe, maybe we've just turned into grumpy old men. I'm not sure. Well, I certainly got the old part covered. <laughs> Gordon, it's been a delight. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Shane. Bye-bye. Take care. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time...